Please open your Bible to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, and we have uh, handed you, when you walked in, a copy of some notes that will help you track with us this morning. You will need your Bibles, I'll say that. We're going to do a little bit different sermon type this morning. Normally my preference is going through words and verses and paragraphs uh, of the text of Scripture, but we're going to do some systematic theology this morning. And we're going to be going to a lot of different passages that you will need to write down and, and keep those, fi- those fingers limber. Philippians chapter 2. read the story just yesterday of uh, a situation that happened years ago. A young pastor graduated from his Bible training and, and uh, made a connection with a, a country church in the Midwest, further west than us. And... He was excited about his first pastorate. He'd worked hard for this. He'd prayed hard. He was excited. And so he made his way to his new assignment. It was a country church, a small church, surrounded by a small town, more like a village. Everyone knew of the church. Everyone said that they identified with the church. But the church numbers had dwindled through the years. And there weren't many people left in this church when he arrived. Well, he did the best he could to bring life to that church. He went, uh, uh, went through different uh, series. He had in special speakers. He planned special events and outreaches. And for several years, he put this kind of energy into it. And then guess what happened? The numbers just went further down. And desperate times called for desperate measures. And this young pastor had an idea that he ran with. He took out an announcement in the local newspaper on Friday. And the name of the announcement, the title was, The Church in Town Has Died. It was the only church in town, so people knew which one the announcement was talking about. It says, The Church in Town Has Died. And underneath that heading in the newspaper, it said, There will be a funeral service for the church this Sunday morning at 10. Well, guess what happened? People were arriving a half hour early in order to get a seat because it was a small church. And they packed every inch of that auditorium out that morning. What is this? The church has died and there's a funeral service? It was so packed that there were people in the lobby and even some pressing in at the windows to just hear the eulogy and And to see what does this mean, the church has died. So that was who showed up. And sure enough, the young pastor got up and he gave the eulogy for the church. And people were listening, but something else had really grabbed their attention, and that's that there was a coffin in the front of the church. It was closed during the eulogy. And after the young pastor gave his eulogy, he said, now after I pray, now that the eulogy is finished, we're going to open the casket so you can come up and pay your last respects to the church. And so he did his eulogy, and he went down there, and the, 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 the coffin was just covered with flowers, and he cleared the flowers off, he opened the lid, and the line formed immediately. It was out the doors. Everyone wanted to come by this coffin. But something interesting happened as each person made their way to the, to the coffin. Because when they looked in the coffin, they didn't see what they were expecting. This young pastor had put a large mirror 
in that coffin. And as people walked by, they sheepishly and quietly walked out the door afterwards because as they walked by, they saw the church that had died. It was them. The church is not brick and mortar, we say here. The church is the people. We really believe that here at Calvary Baptist Church. And that's why in light of recent growth that God has blessed us with, and in light of our, our, our well-defined mission statement that's on the wall in the lobby, we exist to glorify God by making disciples in a community of grace. And also in light of the current efforts, the current process we're going through in an unhurried way, uh, we are revising and updating the, the Constitution and bylaws and the covenant. And, and uh, I'll be saying more about that this evening in our business meeting. And by the way, please come to the business meeting at 5. I meant to say something before the sermon. So we believed it was a good time this winter to go through a short three-week biblical reminder of what it means for Calvary Baptist Church to be a community of grace. Now, we define that as Paul's, using Paul's language in books like Ephesians and Colossians and Philippians, a community of a grace is a place where there is tremendous unity with the people against the diversity and the variety of the people. No one in here is called to be uniform with each other. We're all unique. We have preferences. We have tastes. We have convictions. But against the backdrop of the variety, there's an amazing unity that grace brings about. The grace of the gospel. We've looked in this series at different names that the Bible refers to the church with. And, 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 and every one of these pictures, and these are just a few show the, the variety that creates a unity. The body is considered a body in Ephesians 1. It's considered a family in Ephesians 3. It's considered a flock in 1 Peter 5. It's considered a building in 1 Corinthians 3. It's, con it's considered a field in 1 Corinthians 3. It's even considered a house in 1 Timothy 3. And it's referred to as a temple in 1 Corinthians 6. Just to show you, it takes so much to make each one of those, but each one of those turns out to be a, un, a unity, a whole. That's the church. And so what I want to do as we come and turn the corner into the final message this morning of this short series before we return to 1 Peter, I want you to take three looks at this concept of the community of grace. I think here at the third installment of this series, you are ready to take these three looks, and it's, I would even argue, important that you take these three looks right now. These three looks will lace tightly together the CBC family into a community of grace. The first look is simply look back, look back. Remember the journey that we've taken together during these three sermons, uh, the two that have preceded this one. You need to remember, someone once said that everyone has a photographic memory, some just don't have the film. Know what I mean? I need you to not forget the territory we've covered up to this point. You need that now to understand what I'm going to tell you in a few minutes. We've made two stops on this journey prior to this sermon. The first one was in Philippians chapter 2, 
verses 1 through 5, that study was called the reality of our unity. Look at Philippians 2. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, and intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. In that first message, we talked about from this text the reality of our unity, or in other words, what we are together. That was our key text. Who are we together? Well, we learned as we studied that passage that we face the same direction, we fight the same foes, and we form the same priority, and we follow the same example. You see, what do you mean by that? When we said face the same direction, that means that we have the same goal of loving each other, listen, and all of us. Not just a select few on our list and in our phone. We're part of a body and there's a mutual concern of love for each other. Therefore, we fight the same foes as well. And our biggest foes that we saw in Philippians 2 is the first foe is my way. It's got to be done my way. And then the second foe is me first. We saw all of those in this verse, in these verses. That meant that we need to form the same priority, and we all have the same priority together when we're gathered and even when we're scattered, and it's the priority, it's the race to being a servant to all. You say, where do I look for an example? Well, we all follow the same example, verse 5, and that's Christ. Uh, that was our first stop. And I also shared with you on that stop in that sermon a quote by Sinclair Ferguson. He says, if Christ is not ashamed to indwell them, I will not be slow to embrace them. Talking of others in the body of Christ. That was our first stop. The second stop was in John chapter 15. Would you turn to John chapter 15 with me? This was last Sunday as we came to the communion table. John chapter 15, what, what was this study about? Well, this is about not the reality of our unity only, but the treasure of our unity. In other words, it answered the question, what do we as Christians in this expression of the body of Christ, this local church, what do we treasure together? I know we're all different from each other. Praise the Lord, right? But there are a few things that we do have in common. And we found that here in John chapter 15. We are in the upper room with our Lord and his 11 disciples, 11 remaining disciples. It could be that they're en route now to the Mount of Olives by this point as well uh, in John 15. But this is, a, this is a Jesus talking. And he says in verse 1, I was going to read to you Luke 15. That's where my Bible was, but it, my Bible and my notes aren't getting along. Oh, there's John 15. Jesus said, I am, this is one of the I am statements we're studying in John, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear 
more fruit. And you are already pruned or clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do, what's the next word? Nothing. Nothing. What is this? This is what we treasure together. If Jesus is the vine, that just makes us a bunch of sticks. We're the branches. But what do we share in common as branches? We share in common, as we saw at the communion table last Sunday, an exclusivity of life found only in the sun. We get our life as branches from the sun, not from religion, not from good works. It's from a life-giving Savior, the only one. He says, I'm not just a vine, I'm the true vine. We share that in common, the exclusivity of life in the sun, but we also share in common the guarantee of fruit in the sun. Since we are abiding in Christ, the true branches will bear the fruit, not of the branches, of the vine. So much so is this guaranteed that the Father, who is the pruner here, will take away the dead weight. The branches that don't belong in this vine, and even the ones that are fruitful, they get pruned, so they even bring forth more fruit. It's not if someone's in Christ, they may bear fruit. No, if you're in Christ, you will bear fruit, and the Father's goal is much fruit. We share that in common. But there's a third thing we treasure in our unity that we have in common. It's the vitality of dependence on the Son. It's that word abide. It's being in Christ. This is what we have in common. No matter what our address is, no matter what our bank balance is, no matter what our skin color is, we have this in common. And I said to you last week that these realities do not isolate and exalt us. No, these realities gather and humble us. I wonder, let me just pause right here for a moment and say, do you have the life in the sun? Has there been a time when you realized your eyes were opened graciously by God, not only to your sin, but the fact that you can't fix the sin problem that's between you and God? You've tried religion. You've tried chat rooms. <laughs> You've tried books, you've tried YouTube, and you still can't deal with the sin problem that you know is there between you and God. I pray that this morning, even right now, whether you're here or online, that God will, in his grace, open your eyes to see, yes, the sin is worse than you realize, and the Savior is greater than you can imagine. And he died on the cross to absorb the wrath of God that was justly due you, and he rose from the dead, according to the scriptures. And he's gathering to himself a company of redeemed sinners, like you and like me, who accept his free gift of eternal life. Have you done that? I pray that God will open your eyes. I pray that the Spirit will blow, and you'll see the kingdom of God and come to Christ. The unity we have is so, so important as a church Remember our journey. 
As you know, one of my favorite biblical counseling authors is named Ed Welch, the Presbyterian brother. He's written a lot of good books, but the one on addictions, is, it, it, the book is called Addictions. The subtitle is A Banquet in the Grave. I love that title. It's loving and it's honest. But as Welch writes, trying to encourage people that need hope and help who are caught in addictions, whether it's substance abuse or pornography or destructive behavior, they're caught in addictions. You know where Ed Welch wants to take his reader? To the importance of the local church. Listen to these words by Ed Welch in, in that book, Addictions. Quote, in our battles with sin, we need a team of people. We need teachers to help us understand scriptures, preachers to help us apply it, interceders to pray for us, preachers to focus our eyes on Christ, encouragers to remind us of God's grace when we feel like failures, wise men and women to discern when we are making foolish decisions, and people of faith to tell us that everything God has said is true in Christ. In other words, God's gifts to us are people. Not just one person, but the church. This is how Christ meets us. The reason we need so many people is that we need Christ himself. Since his glory and gifts are so immense, we need many people, not just an individual person. End quote. Yeah, that. We agree with that after our journey. But let me tell you something about this journey, this first point. This journey exposes certainties. What we've learned so far in this journey in the first two studies has exposed that there are certainties that we need to be aware of. If the body of Christ is to be what we've been studying, it's going to have some requirements, some certainties. The community of grace is not merely a curriculum. It's not a motto. It's not a theory. It's not a novel. It's not fiction, it's not a fad, and it's not optional. Everything we've seen from Scripture, this journey exposes certainties. And that moves us to the second look this morning. I want you to look up. We need to find these certainties. Now, there are so many, but we're going we're gonna to lay hold, and we're going to work your Bibles right now, on four that the journey exposes. The journey exposes these certainties to local churches, listen, like Calvary Baptist Church of Ypsilanti. What's the first certainty? I'll call it this. God's heart for the church. His heart for the church. And for this one, I'd like for you to write down John chapter 17 with me and turn with me to John chapter 17. I don't think it'll be a long trip to the right. You're in John 15. Go to John 17, still in the same conversation our Lord is having with those disciples of his as they make their way, well, to his betrayal and crucifixion. John chapter 17. And we know at this point that they are most likely on the move. This is a conversation the disciples are listening to as Jesus, the Son, speaks out loud to the Father. 
John chapter 17, and I'd love to read the whole thing, and actually we're going to have a Sunday night series on most of this chapter later this year called Jesus Prays for You. But for right now, I just want to direct your attention to page, or to John 17, verse 9. Jesus speaking to his Father, I ask on there, my disciples' behalf, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you, Father, have given me, for they are yours, and all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you. So, Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, listen to this, that they may be one even as we are. Now keep that in, in your mind, and I want you to drop down to verse 20. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those who will believe in me through their word. And I like to look up every time I read that and point at you and say, that's where you're in the Bible. You have come to faith in Christ because of the apostolic words in Scripture. that God is given by inspiration. This is you, verse 20. So he's praying for you here, verse 21, that they, that you, may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Did you get that? That the world may believe that you sent me. What is the heart of the Father? What is the heart of God for the church? It's unity, listen, for the sake of witness. That's what it is. Unity for the sake of witness. That's his heart. Sometimes you just can start thinking the wrong thing that God starts the church, but then he's busy doing other stuff. Do not think of God as a detached manager at Kroger on aisle 9, but his church is on aisle 3. He's aware of where it is, and he can get to it if he has to, but he's kind of busy. No. The heart of the Father, the heart of the Son, the heart of the Spirit is for that there be a unity. Listen, not that he's not telling all these disciples, these 11 disciples, all of you have to become like Peter. No. Andrew, you stay Andrew. John, you stay John. Peter, you do you. And he says, but there's going to be a unity that doesn't make sense And it's because of grace, and it will cause the world to note and scratch their head and say, only God could do this. What's God's heart for our unity? What's the first certainty? His heart for the church is unity for the sake of witness. There's a second certainty I want you to see. I want you to see his design for the church. His design for the church. And for this one, I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 with me. Write that down. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. What's his design for the church? Can I give you the answer and we'll see it in the text? His design for the church, listen, is unity again, but also unity for the sake of interdependence. His goal is to build the church in a way that you need everyone else in the church. Say, well, I hang out with people from the church. We get coffee a couple times a week. So I'm doing church, right? No, you're not. I mean, kind of, a little. But that's like the nose and the elbows saying, let's do coffee all the time and just the two of us. 
Nose is important, elbow is important, but you might need the ankle. And it might be good for you to have an ear show up. Guess what? When we are gathered together, the reason the New Testament punctuates the importance of us gathering together is because the whole body's here. And you need it. Our, his design for the church is unity for the sake of independence. Let me just read a couple verses uh, highlighting some things that Ben has already read. Chapter 12, look at verse 11. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. Look down at verse 18. But now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he desired. Look down at verse 24. It says, uh, in the middle of the verse, God has so composed the body. In other words, the fact that you're here is part of God's design. The fact that you're here with everyone else that's here is part of his design. His design for the church is a unity that will require an interdependence. You want to kill Calvary Baptist Church and see your face in the mirror? Be an independent Christian. And you can come to everything that we have here and still be independent and not let anyone in and the church will die. It's designed to be interdependent. It's a body. The body of Christ. Well, there's a third certainty I want you to see here. The third certainty as we fill out a little bit more our little systematic theology of the church is this. His goal in the church the third certainty is his goal in the church. And for this one, I'd like for you to write down Ephesians chapter 4 and turn to Ephesians chapter 4 with me. Ephesians chapter 4. You say, what's his goal in the church? Can I give you the answer and we'll see it in the text? His goal in the church, you guessed it, is unity for the sake of growth. Not numerically, but in disciples. You could put it this way. His goal in the church is unity for the sake of maturity. Maturity as a body, which breeds also a maturity of individuals in the church. I have your Bibles open to Ephesians 4, but drop back into verse 20 and 21 of chapter 3, and then we'll break into chapter 4. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. Look especially at verse 21. To him be the glory, you listening, in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. And that gives birth to chapter 4. Therefore, I the prisoner of the Lord implore you, congregation, implore you, plural, implore you, church, local church at Ephesus, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There's only one body, one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Wow. Well, this is unity, definitely. But what's the end goal, Paul? The end goal is maturity. You see, the next couple of verses, he's going to 
He's going to explain in verses 7 through verse 10 his incarnation, his coming to earth, and then his exaltation, his ascension. And after his ascension, it says, it'll say in verse 11, that he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. Why? For the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. You say, well, that's the end game. It's a head game, right? We just got to get degrees. We got to get certificates. We got to finish the class. That's what it's about. No, the end game, his goal in the church with all these pieces in place is shown in verse 16. Look at verse 16. Drop back into verse 15, talking of Christ, who is the head, from whom, verse 16, the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. And then the very next verse, we're back to where he start, he ended I say this and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer as an unsaved person outside of the church. His goal in the church is unity for the sake of growth. This has been a three-part series, but really it's been a much longer series than that because before we did this, we did a series on church discipline called The Shepherd's Reach. Remember that from Matthew 18? Then we just decided last minute to stay in there and do a series on forgiveness between believers. Remember that? It's all about caring for each other and growing. Suddenly, when you realize this certainty that his goal in the church is growth, all those 30 plus one another passages make sense. There are over 30 positive and negative one another New Testament sentence or statements. I won't give them all to you, but I'll, I'll whet your appetite. We're to love one another, be devoted to one another. Honor one another, live in harmony with one another, build up one another, accept one another, admonish one another, care for one another, serve one another, bear with one another, forgive one another, be patient with one another, you getting tired yet? Speak truth to one another, submit to one another, teach one another, encourage one another, comfort one another, pray for one another, confess to one another, speak truth and love to one another, be kind and compassionate to one another, stir up one another, and show hospitality to one another. And I'll stop there. There's a lot more. Get the point? They all make sense. When you understand the goal, the design for the church by God himself is growth. But there's one more, one more certainty, a fourth one. I want you to see, fourthly, his, God's, enemy against the church. His enemy against the church. See, what do you mean by that? Well, let me give you the answer, and I'm going to show it to you. The goal here, too, is unity. All four of these certainties start with unity, but this unity is for the sake of protection. Protection against what? Protection against whom? Protection against God's enemy and the enemy of the church. Satan. The evil one. He's the one that we sung a hymn about called A Mighty Fortress is Our God. You say, well, things are really bad here in the West now and it's all in Hollywood and New York, right? And I'm saying, no, it's, it's bad in Ipsy spiritually 
It's bad globally across the nations. The kingdom of darkness, Satan is not omnipresent. But he has a a brilliantly organized and massive network of spiritual minions at his bidding and under his rulership. And they are active in every nation, in every city. Can I even say this? Every chair here. There is a spiritual warfare that if we could even get a glimpse of it, we'd understand why in the Lord's Prayer, our Lord says one thing you need to pray for every day, trust me on this, is deliver us from the evil one. You say, well, that's just like in 2024, right? It's always been this way. From the birth of the church, even way back, I'm going to tell you a couple churches that you might be familiar with. How about the church at Jerusalem, the first one that was born in Acts chapter 2, and already in Acts chapter 5, Satan's there. In Acts chapter 5, in that episode of Ananias and Sapphira, It's Peter that says, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? He said that to a member. Satan was active. He's the enemy of the church because he's the enemy of God. We could go to Corinth. Actually, let's visit Corinth uh, for another example. Go to 2 Corinthians with me. I was just going through this epistle in my my own devotions this week, and I, I just started circling all the times that Satan shows up in Corinth at the church. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. I'm not going to preach each of these. Just want to direct your attention to them. Look at verse 10 and 11. But one, and Paul's not in Corinth writing this. He's far away in other churches and and, and giving his attention to the, the care of all the churches he'll write later. He himself is being persecuted. But listen. He he knows that Satan is involved and active in every local church. Look at verse 10. But one whom you forgive anything, I forgive also, for indeed what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ, so that no advantage would be taken of, who's us? The church. No advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. You say, well, Paul wasn't at that church. He said he's writing it from somewhere else. He is. But he's so involved with this church, he likes to refer to it as us. And don't focus on the Paul part. Focus on the rest of the us, that church. We don't want Satan to take advantage of us with his schemes that we watch for. That's just one. Oh, there's more of Satan in Corinth. Look at chapter 4, verse 4. Verse 3. And even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. Those who are outside the church, unsaved. But Paul's going to have to throw the covers off of the enemy who's working against the proclamation of the gospel in that church. In, that, in, in Corinth, excuse me. Verse 4. In whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Satan is working against their witness. You go to chapter 11, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3. I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds, Christians, your minds, church, will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. I mean, we can keep going. Satan was very active from the very start. A 
assailing the church in Jerusalem, of course, in Corinth. We could go to Ephesus. Ephesus, we can read the account of its of the church coming to, or the gospel coming to town and, and a church being formed in Acts chapter 16. As Paul's visiting there, we have demons being cast out by someone called the son of Sceva, sons of Sceva. Um, and he's throwing them out and he's casting them out in the name of Jesus and invoking Paul. And the demons say to this guy, we know who Jesus is and Paul we're aware of, but who are you? There's heavy demonic activity in Ephesus from the start, so much so that a few verses later in, the, in Acts chapter 16, with the people that are coming to Christ and having faith in Christ, they're burning their magical arts books. It's amazing. So we're not, we're not surprised that when Paul writes Timothy, who's pastoring in Ephesus, in 1 Timothy chapter 3 verse 7, as Paul gives warning to the pastors and elders of that church, he says, be careful that they do not fall into the trap of the devil. Because he's there. The snare of the devil, 1 Timothy 3, 7. In chapter 5, verse 15 of 1 Timothy, again, written to the church, the leader of the church in Ephesus, Paul says, there are some young widows who are taking on a sensual lifestyle, and Paul will say that they have, a turn, they have turned aside to Satan, to the devil. Those are church members, professing church members. We could go to, we could go to uh, Ephesians 6 and be reminded that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but a well-organized enemy. Verse 16, he's throwing flaming arrows at Christians. And we have a shield of faith for that. We could go to Thessalonica. We see the evil one busy there. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 2.18, I wanted to come to you, but Satan hindered us. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 5, Paul writes, I also sent to find out about your faith for fear that the tempter might have tempted you and our labor would be in vain. And then you have the Jerusalem church that got scattered because of persecution. And James, Pastor James, has to write to a scattered congregation in James 4, 7 and remind them to resist Satan and he'll flee from you. We can go to modern-day Turkey, which is the region that I believe Paul wrote his first, or Peter wrote his first epistle to. And Peter, even talking to those people way up there, Jew and Gentile, had to warn him against a lion that's seeking to devour you. Resist him steadfast, because your brothers and sisters elsewhere are under the same attack. Satan is everywhere. I mean, we can go to Revelation on the postal route. We see in Smyrna that Satan had thrown some of the church into prison. In Revelation chapter 2, Thyatira uh, was aware of what John will describe as the deep things of Satan. The church at Philadelphia had to deal with the synagogue of Satan, chapter 3. Even in the, the kingdom parables in Matthew chapter 13, wherever you have believers, wherever you have the word going out, Satan is there like birds on, on the pathway, just just taking the seed, as soon as the word is given, there's a distraction by Satan and his demons to take even a sermon like this out of your mind as soon as you leave here today. 
as we push our way further into the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 13, verse 25, we find that the, 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 the enemy plants tares right in the middle of the, of the wheat. That's the church, the kingdom. I've gone into a lot of detail on this point because I'm pretty mad. We're not aware of this battle. And it's relentless, it's vile, it's destructive, it's damning, and you better believe it's present. I got a principle here. The kingdom of darkness's church attendance is impeccable. And if that kingdom can keep us away from each other as a body, yes. we'll have to plan the funeral service. A.W. Tozer wrote, The neglected heart will soon be a heart overrun with worldly thoughts. The neglected life will soon become a moral chaos. Ah. But the church that is not jealously protected by mighty intercession and sacrificial labors will before long become the abode of every evil bird and the hiding place for unsuspected corruption. The creeping wilderness will soon take over that church that trusts in its own strength and forgets to watch and pray. You never have to wonder about God and his church. You can hear his will. He wants unity for the sake of witness, for the sake of interdependence, for the sake of growth, and for the sake of protection. These are certainties that never change. So watch this, watch this. We've got to finish this up. If the journey, if the journey exposes certainties, what do certainties do? If the journey exposes certainties, then certainties, listen, demand commitment. They demand a mutual ownership of each other. And it's here where we, we come to the final look, look around, look around, and face one another. If everything is as we've described here, we're on this journey, and that journey has built out for us certainties about the church, it's going to cost us. It's going to cost us. It's going to cost you. And let me just say this about commitments. Commitments are not to be abstract. They have to be concrete. They have to be specific. You say, give me some examples of the two. An abstract commitment is, if I to, uh, an abstract uh, um, command would be for me to tell you, eat breakfast. Well, what does that mean? What time is that? Where do I go? What do I eat? A concrete command of eat breakfast would say, go to the bomber, order the large skillet, and extra crispy bacon. One's general, one's specific, right? I'll give you another example. An abstract command is, go get gas. A concrete command is, I want you to take my Ford Fusion, I want you to drive it to Whitaker Street to the Kroger and use my wife's gas card from Kroger and get 20 cents off a gallon. One's general, one's specific. I'll give you one more. Why? Because it's fun. I could say, read your Bible. What does that mean? 
But if Pastor Michael stands up here and says, I want you to read your Bible, and I've written a Bible reading schedule for you to consider. It'll take you through Psalms and Proverbs and the New Testament in a few months. That's specific. It needs to be the same with us as we talk to each other. Let me give you a mouthful here. Don't try to write all this down. You'll get more of this in the coming weeks and months. But we need to talk about our commitment to each other. And it's important that this be the third message and not the first one. Theology must drive you to, must, to the point where you must be asking this question, what is our commitment to each other? That's when we start talking about church membership covenants. And I want to make with you a few re reflections and recommendations about this as we prepare to not only tie off this series, but this series is meant to give us our talking points for you as a congregation on Sunday nights after Awana ends when we come together for several meetings for the revision of the, of the Constitution and bylaws, including the Church Covenant. I wonder, when's the last time you read the Church Covenant? We have the 2012 example out there. Have you read that any time recently? You're going to do it right now. Me too. Our biblical mission is clear. We are wanting to glorify God by making disciples in a community of grace. Exactly. But we have a covenant right now, and uh, here's how it reads. Having been led, as we believe, by the Spirit of God to receive the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior, and on the profession of our faith, having been baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, we do now, in the presence of God, angels, and this assembly, most solemnly and joyfully enter into covenant with one another as one body in Christ. We engage, therefore, by the aid of the Holy Spirit to walk in Christian love, to strive for the advancement of his church in knowledge, holiness, and comfort, to promote the prosperity and spirituality, to sustain its worship, ordinances, discipline, and doctrines, to contribute cheerfully and regularly to the support of the ministry, the expenses of the church, and the relief of the poor, and the spread of the gospel through all nations. We also engage to maintain family and secret devotions, to religiously educate our children, to seek the salvation of our kindred and acquaintances, to walk circumspectly in the world, to be just in our dealings, faithful in our engagements, and exemplary in our deportment, to avoid all tattling, backbiting, and excessive anger, to abstain from the sale and use of intoxicating drinks as beverage, and to be, a ze be zealous in our efforts to advance the kingdom of our Savior. You read this recently? We further engage to watch over one another in brotherly love, to remember each other in sickness and to distress, to cultivate Christian sympathy and feeling and courtesy and speech, to be slow to take offense but always ready for reconciliation and mindful of the rules of our Savior to secure it without delay. We moreover engage that when we remove from this place, we will as soon as possible unite with some other church where we may carry out the spirit of this covenant and the principles of God's word. That's our current covenant. Have you read it recently? I want to make a couple observations, pastoral observations, not edicts. And by the way, this isn't a pastoral 
change uh, update of constitution and bylaws. It's gone through from pastor to a committee of men and women in membership, now to where it is with the deacons, and then it comes to the congregation. This is an us thing. Let me make just a couple of personal observations about this. A church covenant, or church covenants are actually, or should be treated as vows that the church members make to each other. That's what a covenant is, okay? I like what Pastor Aaron Menikoff in Georgia says, if a statement of faith is a synopsis of right doctrine, the covenant summarizes right living. The covenant aids the church leaders and members by describing what a Christian life looks like. Proper use of a church covenant encourages members to take responsibility for each other's holiness. What we've been talking about this morning. A couple more observations. The current CBC covenant, the one I just read with you, is not, hear me on this, is not, are you getting the point? It is not original with our church family. It's copy and paste. I can show you, Pastor Greg, I see you nodding. We can show you a ton of churches, even outside of Baptist churches, that have this copy and pasted into their documents. So our church fathers here in these 80 years did not come up with these words. Okay, it's copy and paste. I'm not saying they're wrong, but sometimes we might think or might have be under the impression that we came up with these words. That's not the truth. We affirm these words, but someone else wrote them in another ministry years, decades ago, many decades ago. Did you get that point I was trying to make? Should I go back? And, oh, never mind. Okay. Number four, covenants should be brief enough to be recited regularly in corporate worship, such as at the communion table, bringing in new members, church milestone anniversaries, church discipline meetings, at least once a year in the business meetings, we should be having these words wash over us and our ears hearing our, our mouths make commitments to other people, every other person in this room and in the membership. This one's a mouthful. Stay with me. There are a few important problems with listing specific sins and matters of conscience in a covenant. This is me stretching my neck out, but I'm going to state the obvious. You start making a list of sins or addressing only a few matters of Christian conscience, you're going to have a problem. Why? First, it is unwise and unethical to list specific activities that CBC is not willing or capable of policing. If listed, an activity must be policed and where necessary discipline for disobedience. Second reason it's dangerous to start lists in a covenant is that when you start listing sins, many sins will be overlooked. You didn't get mine in the current covenant. Mentioning alcohol, for example, but not sensuality or gluttony, what do we do with that? Make the list longer. Really, that's the answer. And it would be more biblical, I believe, to mention umbrella categories of, does this sound familiar? Deeds of the flesh and fruit of the spirit. Actually invoking a very detailed list that's already in scripture for us. It's the, we don't have to make up a list, we have one. And it's found in Galatians 5. Do you remember these? The deeds of the flesh. The deeds of the flesh. 
are very evident. Immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarned you before that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Then we got the fruit of the Spirit, next verse. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, you know the rest of the list. I recommend that we use a Bible list that already exists. And, yeah, you'll hear more about that as we, we move on. One more observation. The directions, the flow or sequence of the covenant should look Godward, talk of our worship, inward, talk about our membership, and outward, talking about reaching the world. So here's a recommended rewrite for our church covenant. The deacons have been through this. It's, it's made it through all three um, passages. We're not passing it today. You have to pass this. But I would appeal to you with the observations I've made and with the, the words of Galatians 5 rich in front of us, here's what, what we're going to probably bring out, something real close to this. It would be, we would recite this at the Lord's table with new members, occasionally at business meetings. You want, we want everyone to own this one. Having been brought by divine grace to repent of sin, to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior, to submit ourselves to his lordship, and having been baptized upon our profession of faith in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we do now, relying on his gracious aid, solemnly and joyfully renew our covenant with each other. How are we doing so far? We will work together for the continuance of a faithful evangelical ministry in this church as we sustain its doctrines, worship, ordinances, and discipline. You see, it sounds a little familiar. We tried to still stay close to the DNA and the, the, the trajectory of the old one, the current covenant. I mean, we're not throwing it to the wind. We, one of our values is to try to stay and preserve what we can. We will contribute cheerfully and regularly to the support of the ministry, the expenses of this church, and the spread of the gospel throughout all nations. We will not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, nor neglect to pray for one another. We will work and pray for the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We desire that our church family clearly reflect a community of grace. We will walk together in brotherly love, exercise affectionate care and biblical watchfulness over each other, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, bear each other's burdens, and faithfully admonish and appeal to one another as occasion may require. We will seek by divine aid to live out and mature the fruit of the Spirit. That's a list in Scripture. As well as forsake the deeds of the flesh, a list in Scripture. We individually and corporately commit to the holiness that is consistent with and reflective of our righteous positional standing in Christ Jesus. We will endeavor to disciple one another and by a pure and loving example seek the salvation of the lost. Our duty is to make disciples of our families, our acquaintances, our local neighborhoods, and the nations. We will, should we move from this place, unite with another church as soon as possible where we can carry out the spirit of this covenant and the principles of God's word. May the grace of our Lord Jesus the love of God 
and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen. Keep that in your mind as we approach, not only as we tie off a series, all three parts of this series have been to introduce you to this statement and why. But the ball will soon be in your court on Sunday nights after Awana's over, and the deacons and I will be entertaining discussion with you and making proposals. And the deacons and I stand only on the, well, it's not even me, I don't, have a, I don't have a vote in the third phase. I'm with them and talking, I don't have a vote. The deacons right now are standing on the shoulders of another committee that was before them that lasted nine months. And they stand on the shoulders of, at that time, Pastor Ernie and me. So, it's almost to that point. I wonder if there's any questions <laughs> in our hearts of where our three looks took us this morning. We looked back, we remember the journey. We looked up, we know God's certainties about the church. We've looked around, we face each other. What's our commitment therefore supposed to be? It must be concrete, not abstract. So I guess a closing question or two I have for you is, what are you willing to sacrifice to make those commitments? It's going to require time of you. Are you willing to sacrifice time? It's going to require space of you. Who will you seek out or who will you let into your space? And it will require humility on your part and vulnerabilities. Who are you willing to allow to speak into your life? I don't know. I hope someday the Detroit Free Press won't post an announcement that Calvary Baptist Church of Ipsy has died. Funeral in three days. I pray, but I also have great hope because the head of the church is doing amazing things in our midst. It guarantees that the enemy is here too. But we're up for the fight. I love the wording of Paul in Romans 12, 5, before we pray. We who are many are one body in Christ and individually, listen to this, members of one another, not with one another, of one another. Lord, this is your church. You're the head. You are building this church. You've purchased your church with your blood, the blood of your own, as we read in Acts chapter 20. So, Lord, protect us. I guess we can pray the Lord's Prayer for our whole church. You're our Father. You brought us into existence. Come for us. You're our King. Protect us and guide us. You give us our daily bread. Resource us, Lord. You've forgiven us, Lord. Help us to forgive each other. And, Lord, do not lead us into testing and deliver us from the evil one. In Jesus' name we pray.